Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, August the 2nd, 2019. And this is episode 2,484 of the Survival Podcast. Yesterday I said it was 2485. I was wrong. Jack was wrong. Uh, it was 2483 yesterday. So we have 16 episodes away from the episode 2500. You need to call the jerk line if you want to be part of that. That's all I'll say about that today. But uh, we're getting quite a few calls here toward the end, and I'd love to have you be part of episode 2500. If you want to find out how to call the jerk line, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and type in jerk in the search box. You'll find a post all about it. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? You know it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show because uh, it's Friday, 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 right? So here's what we got today. Uh, number one, tiny homes as in-law suites and uh, making a decision to go solar or on grid with Gary Collins. Using Comfrey for orthopedic purposes from Old Doc Bones, backup power, Grid tie solar and solar panel prices, all from Sean Mills. Three separate questions that came in on MeWe Chat. He put them all into one great piece for us today. Dealing with an abundance of tomatoes and specifically canning them and getting rid of the seeds, if that's what you want to do, with Nicole Sauce. So Nicole Sauce is going to talk about making tomato sauce today. Uh, an update from Montana and Wheaton Labs from Paul Wheaton and Jocelyn Campbell up there. Trading the gold and silver ratio with John Pugliano. And considerations when considering cashing out a 401k when I don't maybe think you should. I was supposed to do this Monday. I didn't. I somehow I got left out. So I've pulled it back up, and I'm going to do it for the guy that sent it in today. And then I'm going to kind of combine another piece with the item of the day today. I'm going to do an anchor piece today called Why Those with Real Solutions Are Always Hated. And what we can learn from that about creating solutions in the world and in our own lives. That's going to be me, myself, and I, Jax. Before we get to all the great stuff from the expert council today, let's go ahead and take a look at this week in history. We're actually going to look specifically at this day in history. Every week I pick you know, something to happen during that particular week in history. Today is, uh, as, as many of you have pointed out on Facebook, even though I don't really get uh, really excited about it, my birthday. I was born... On August 2nd. What I've always find interesting uh, about August 2nd is the sheer number of things and the total amazing crap that all happened on the same day that I happened to have been expelled from a birth canal. On my 18th birthday in 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait right after I joined the United States Army. Yay me. So um, that was actually like a, a trigger for me to key in on like, well, what else happened on my birthday? So, some really bad shit happened on my birthday uh, throughout history, and some stuff that's not quite as bad. In 1934, Adolf Hitler became Fuhrer of Germany on my birthday. In 1923, President Warren Harding dropped over dead right before all the scandals in his, uh, his administration broke. Um, in 1943, Japanese forces attacked the PT boat with John F. Kennedy on board. So that happened on my birthday. Uh, Wild Bill Hickok was murdered in 1876 on my birthday. In 1985, here in Dallas-Fort Worth, sudden thunderstorms caused a plane crash, killing 135 people. 
1942, uh, a, a really crazy murder happened near an L.A. reservoir. Uh, a guy named uh, Jose Diaz was murdered, again in 1942, on my birthday. In 1865, the Civil War finally really stopped because the CSS Shenandoah was told by a British vessel, hey, y'all need to stop trying to sink ships and shit out of here because y'all lost and the war is over. Um, in 1945, uh, the Potsdam Conference concluded on my birthday. Uh, that was the last time the big three, the Soviet Union, United States, and Great Britain met uh, in the resolution of World War II. Uh, in 1776, the delegates actually all signed the Declaration of Independence, leading me to say that our, our, uh, our holiday as a, as a nation being born really should have been my birthday, August 2nd. And uh, in 1917, in World War One, mutiny broke out on a German battleship. I, you know, there are times when I'm like trying to do an, uh, 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 you know, a, a day of the week, this, this week in history, or even when I was doing this day, where you're like, well, I don't really see anything. It's like, man, my birthday has all kinds of crazy crap that happened on it, and um, I guess you know, me being born is kind of like some more crazy crap because I've caused a lot of crazy crap in the world. And I just wanted to set the stage with that because when we finish today, we are going to talk about a book by a guy named Richard Bach that is the item of the day, but we're really going to talk about what it takes to make real change, real significant change in the world, and how the people that do it are always hated. They are always absolutely hated, and the mindset of what is normal and how detrimental it is to human progress. That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, before we uh, get to that, we got a whole bunch of stuff in store, starting out with uh, Gary Collins giving us some thoughts on uh, tiny homes and whether to go off-grid or not when you're building one for in-laws to live you know, in the backyard, so to say. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things better living, as far as living off the grid, RV living, primal health, you know, just anything that makes our lives darn better and gets rid of the noise, for God's sakes. But um, also real quick, be on the lookout for my new book, The Simple Life Guide to Financial Freedom. It's all done. It's in process right now and my podcast coming soon. For building a teeny home and must-haves and if you if you want to, if it's worth it to make it a solar-powered house, few questions to unwrap in there. Um, this house is built for Joe's in-laws, so they're older, 70s, I believe. I would rule against if you're if you're grid if you're on the grid and you have utilities to the property in your business, I would just hook it up to the grid because it, it, a solar-powered house, off-grid house, there's there's maintenance to it. You got you know it's not just easy. You're you're the power company. So, you know, older people, they forget they leave on lights and, you know, other things and heaters and next thing you know, the batteries are drained and all that good stuff. So I'd probably rule against that. As must-haves in the house, you already mentioned solar or uh, central heating and cooling. Absolutely, definitely do that. They're elderly. Uh, it's just a, a better way to go than having a portable air conditioner, or, you know, portable heaters, all that good stuff. Um, I would recommend a uh, one and a half bath just because uh, down the road it could be a guest house once uh, your in-laws either maybe move out, go to nursing homes, go on to the next stage of life. Let's put it that way. You know, yeah, 
make it make it that way. I just a half bath doesn't cost that much to do. You add it to one of the bedrooms, and then the master usually, you know, you do a bath tub bath shower combo. Then the half bath is just a toilet, little sink, and a shower. Just easier. It's it's worth it to do. It increases the value as well. Uh, as far as other must haves, hey, it's just a, a small house. Just make sure it has a fully functioning kitchen. Uh, you know, uh, make sure you build it right, get it built right. That's the biggest thing that just, again, remember teeny homes are just small homes. That's all they are. I don't know where all this, you know, unicorn dust and, uh, little fantasy world became with teeny homes. There's nothing unique about them besides they're small. They're just smaller home, but I hope that helps guys. Remember I am in the MSB corporate side, business side. So you get 10% off your full order at the simple life now.com. So I just say it, it, some of Gary's suggestions are depend on exactly what a person means by tiny house. Um, do you mean the uh, 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 200 square feet or do you mean 400 square feet? That's a big difference or 150 square feet to even 250. That's a big difference. So I, I think a half bath is a great idea. If the space is there, As far as the go on grid, off grid with something that's going to go on to a piece of land you already own that already has power to it, I completely agree with Gary. Just hook it up to the grid. It just makes your life easier. However, my thoughts change a lot depending on what you're building. If you're indeed building something that can be hooked up to a truck and moved, if you're building a house on a trailer, Uh, number one, make sure the trailer can handle the F and weight. I've seen what happens when people don't do this, and it's important to understand the weight that the trailer can bear, but also to look at the wheels that are on the trailer and the tires that go on those wheels and the weight that they can bear. Really, really important. If you are going to build a mobile one, And the only reason I see that that makes sense is if you know you're going to move and you want to take it with you, that makes sense, or because you are dealing with the department of making you sad and it's legal if it's on wheels and it's not legal if it's not on wheels. If that's the case, then that makes sense too. If you're going to do that and this thing can move and go somewhere else, just for redundancy alone, even if it can't, but certainly if it can, I would really look hard considering that you're going to have fairly modest power requirements of building a battery backup system into it that at least with the transfer switch can run you know, the power to the home or the majority of the power to the home. I would look at least at doing that because, number one, just the power goes out, they have some power. It's not that expensive to add this. And it's going to be much easier to think about Where do the batteries go? How does the wiring come from there? How do we build access to where they can be removed and serviced if we do it going in with it? Because we're starting from scratch. Number two, if eventually maybe uh, your in-laws do pass on, whatever, and, and you get a, a pioneering hair up your ass, and you guys decide you want to go buy a piece of land somewhere and live remotely, then adding solar to that is simple. Or if you go to sell it, You can really sell the concept of all you got to do is pull it up to wherever you're going to have it and put some panels on the roof and run a cable and hook it up to your battery bank with a, with a solar power, with a, a, a charge controller, and you have an off-grid home. 
So, and then whether or not you add some panels now, that's a complete individual choice. But I would go with grid tie, but I would be I would build it as a grid tie with solar battery backup system, even if I didn't put the solar in right now. And as you'll hear, it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to throw some solar panels on something like that. So that, but I, get use the grid. Uh, next up, uh, got one for Doc Bones on Comfrey. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700-page third edition, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today I'm answering two questions, one from Ryan and another one from Don. They both have orthopedic problems, and they both ask about Comfrey in their emails. Here's Don's. Let's see, I have a question for Dr. Bones. How do you deal and prevent sore joints from repetitive motion? I've been driving a truck for about six years, and my knees have started to ache a little bit at times. What can I do to remedy this and prevent further problems? Would the Comfrey salve Jack recommends be helpful? Thanks, Don from Maine. Also, here is Ryan's. Ryan says, I'm having rotator cuff surgery on my left shoulder. I would like Doc Bone's recommendations for my healing process. The MRI shows that I've torn my rotator cuff halfway through. Oh, boy. The doctor does not know if he'll be able to do a debridement or a repair until he actually sees it. He did say he'll be shaving away part of my bone between the bone and bursa sac to make more room for the movement of the rotator. The surgeon recommended that I purchase a cryotherapy machine, but I do not have any experience with these. They have them for purchase at the surgery center. I do not yet know the brand or model that they offer, but would like to know what I should be looking for. I'll be going to physical therapy three times a week starting the day after surgery. How about Dr. Christopher's comfrey ointment? What are your suggestions on the quickest way to full recovery? Guys, the human body is a miracle of biological engineering, but moving parts wear down with time or they can be damaged with excessive use. When an orthopedic problem occurs, rest is probably the best way to cool down the inflammation. In some cases, it's best to immobilize an injured joint to prevent movement altogether caused by absent-minded exertions. Neither of you told me your ages, but once you hit a certain age, you're at more risk for deterioration of joints like our trucker Don and torn rotators and other injuries like Ryan's. Athletic injuries during school sports, by the way, leave a lot of scarring, whether they required surgery or not. Just ask Miami quarterback Dan Marino about his knees. He'll tell you. Knee pain, by the way, can be caused by ligament or tendon strains, by bursitis or even arthritis. Whatever the case, it's always best to rest the knee and use both ice and heat at the appropriate time. If you think you did something that injured your knee, and especially if it swells, it's important to get ice on the knee as soon as you possibly can, and during the first 48 hours, absolutely. Ice will decrease the swelling and the pain. 
Ice packs should be placed where it hurts for 15 to 20 minutes every 2 to 4 hours for the first couple of days. After that, you should use ice after physical activity, but otherwise use heat. Heat is most helpful after the first couple of days. It promotes blood flow to the knee area, which carries oxygen needed for healing. Heat helps control swelling also once the ice treatment has been completed, and it can help relax ligaments, tendons, and nerves in the knee. At the same time, anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen can decrease inflammation and pain. Sometimes varying ice and heat treatments can help control inflammation and pain on their own. For flare-ups, I want you to use ice, but for daily use, I want heat on that knee. Everyone's different, Don, and what works for you might not be as good for someone else. At least this is a good place to start. Now, Ryan, the rotator cup is a group of muscles and tendons that surround the shoulder joint, keeping the head of your upper arm bone firmly within the shallow socket of the shoulder. A rotator cuff injury can cause a dull ache in the shoulder, which often worsens when you try to sleep on the involved side. I've had to deal with this to a minor extent for some time, or at least I tell myself it's minor. Rotator cuff injuries occur most often in people who repeatedly perform overhead motions in their jobs or sports. Examples include painters, carpenters, or people who play certain sports, maybe tennis, things like that. Third base did it to me. The risk of rotator cuff injury also increases with age. I can also tell you that's true. Many people recover from rotator cuff injuries with physical therapy exercises that improve flexibility and strength of the muscles that surround the shoulder joint. When a rotator cuff occurs acutely, that's the result, in other words, of a specific one-time motion, like a pitcher throwing out his arm, surgery indeed may be necessary, some of which can be major, including replacement of the joint like they do with hips. It's possible, Ryan, that you tried conservative treatments first, such as rest, ice, and physical therapy. A cryotherapy machine, as you mentioned, may work for you, but is it better than ice packs? Some machines also use electrical current on top of cold to work their magic, but I don't have personal experience with them, so I can't tell you if there's a one brand that's better than another. I assume that it works for some, but not if there's a significant tear. If that situation occurs, you need steroid injections into your shoulder joint. These injections are often helpful, but they should only be used when absolutely necessary, as they can contribute to a weakened tendon over time. The reason why I'm answering both Don and Ryan's questions at once is because they both ask about comfrey. Comfrey is a plant used in herbal medicine. I have some growing in my yard, and Jack does also, I believe. It's been a subject of controversy because there's evidence that it's healing for certain orthopedic problems, but also contains things called pyrolizidine alkaloids, or PAs, which are thought to be poisonous if ingested. Despite this, comfrey leaf, root, rhizome, they're all used as anti-inflammatory agents to treat all kinds of problems. It's used as a tea for upset stomach, ulcers, heavy menstrual periods, diarrhea, pleuritis, cough, bronchitis, chest pain, gosh, even cancer. It's also used as a gargle for gum disease and sore throat. Comfrey, if you apply it to the skin, is thought to help skin ulcers, wounds, joint inflammation, bruises, rheumatoid arthritis, swollen veins, gout, and even fractures. The leaf, root, and root light stem, or rhizome, are used to make the medicine. The amount of pyrolizidine alkaloids found in comfrey changes according to the time of harvesting and the age of the plant. 
The quantity also depends on the part of the plant that's used. The roots have 10 times higher amounts of the possibly poisonous PAs than the leaves. Some species of comfrey, by the way, are also more toxic than others. Symphytum officionale, or common comfrey, has less toxins than the prickly comfrey, Symphytum asperum, or Russian comfrey, Symphytum uplandicum. Current medical thinking agrees that topical applications of comfrey are good for a number of issues. Comfrey is possibly effective for decreasing lower or upper back pain. Also applying a cream containing comfrey extract plus methyl nicotinate to the affected area for five days seems to decrease back pain when resting or moving. If you've got wear and tear from osteoarthritis, applying a comfrey extract ointment to the affected area for three weeks or applying a specific cream containing comfrey extract, tannic acid, aloe vera gel, eucalyptus oil, and frankincense oil all in combination for six to 12 weeks seems to decrease pain in people with knee osteoarthritis. That's for you, Don. Sprains. Early research shows that applying comfrey ointment to the affected area for up to two weeks improves mobility, decreases pain, and reduces tenderness and swelling. For all the other issues, the evidence is not all there yet, but you'll find lots of folks who swear by it and deny any ill effects. All I can say is your experience may vary. This is Gerald MD wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits, individual supplies, books, and more at Nurse Amy's store at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I just want to say a couple things here, being a huge fan of Comfrey myself. Uh, number one, I personally think that Comfrey will provide some level of pain relief for just about everything that's an ache, a joint, a ligament, a tear, like some level of, of pain relief. It, it really works for that. When it comes to aiding with healing, in my experience, you heard about torn rotator cuffs. I have a destroyed on some level rotator cuff, and it's a very serious shoulder, shoulder injury that goes all the way back to When I served in the military, it was always 19, 20, 21 years old. And it still gives me problems here and there today. And I do use comfrey for pain relief for that, but I do not believe that really the, the damage that's there, there's much hope of recovery. My experience anyway, with a very severe injury to my knee, is that if you have an injury, your body begins a reparative process. Like, like Bone said, we are a miracle... Uh, of bioengineering, even though supposedly some people believe there was no intelligence behind it, <laughs> whatever. Um, if you begin to use comfrey, the, the compounds that are in it, I believe, aid the body in the rebuilding process. They make it work better. This is why if you put it on a, an abrasion, and if, I, I'm telling you right now, this is this, you can prove this to yourself. You don't need a, a medical study. If you have two scratches and they look about the same, and you put comfrey on one and not the other, the one you put it on will heal much faster. It's a, a dermal regenerator, among other things, in comfrey. And I believe that if you kind of put it with the body's natural restorative process, it can accelerate and improve it. I think that once an injury is old, I, I have doubts about how much it can do. Now, Bones used the term possibly poisonous, and I, I just, every time this shit comes up, I have got to correct it, even from my good friend Bones. Again, and I said this last week, if, if I challenged Doc Bones to a public debate on the safety of the use of comfrey, 
for internal applications when dictated, when necessary, in the amounts that anybody that is a normal human being would use it. And he did his due diligence, as smart as the man is, to prepare for it and reviewed all of the studies and all the methodology that was used to say that it's dangerous and make it illegal to sell for internal use. He would concede the debate before it ever happened. Because if you feed an animal nine times its own body weight, while it is a baby in growth over a ten-week period to prove that something is dangerous, you haven't proven anything, and that's what was done. Nine times the body weight of the animal accounted for growth across the curve of infant rats fed concentrations so high that it had to be done that way because you couldn't get enough into the damn animal by just giving it free choice and then feeding it exclusively coffee and nothing else. I believe that if you did that with spinach, there are PKs, these alkaloids, there's PKs in spinach. And if you push anything to the extreme, you can cause damage. Comfrey has thousands and thousands of years of history of being safe. There are very few human uh, injury and deaths associated with Comfrey. None of it happened until they started taking Comfrey and making super high concentrations of it uh, in, in you know a supplement form. And then people, because they were stupid, decided if some's good, more is better. There, you would have to feed a human being to be equivalent to those rat studies over a 10-week period 60,000 effing leaves of comfrey. This whole comfrey poisonous, comfrey liver damage thing is a bullshit witch hunt, and it should just be ignored at this point. Now, if you go out, poison is a relative term. You can go have a glass of wine tonight. Alcohol is a poison. If you go get a bottle of grain alcohol and consume it, the whole bottle, you'll probably end up dead of alcohol poisoning. Alcohol is a poison. We use it all the time. So are there things in comfort that are poisonous? There's things in almost every plant that are poisonous. Plants make toxins because they don't want to be eaten. Okay? I mean, a lot of the dietary problems we have with going excessive with certain plants, like legumes, are because plants produce toxins. But no one's going to say, oh, you better not eat spinach. Well, they might. But you hear that? You know, uh, what's another? Purslane. Purslane is a, a fantastic herb. And it has the same alkaloids in it that comfrey does. The exact same ones. Spinach has similar, plus oleic acid, right? But they ha these alkaloids are just things that plants have. And they have to be consumed in massive quantities to cause any harm. And no one's going to sit down and eat a bowl of freaking comfrey leaves. All right. I had to say it. Sorry. Let's uh, have Sean Mills give us some really great advice on solar, off-grid, and backup power in hot, warm climates. Hey, TSP. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar. And today I've got a couple questions that came in during last week's MeWe chat. Uh, so I'm going to actually try to knock out all three of those in my allotted time. So first, from Heather... Heather asked, off-grid thoughts for hot climates. Storms in Florida are common, and I'll bet where I'm moving there will be lots of power outages. I know, Jack, you talk a lot about being able to stay cool being the hardest part, but maybe some ideas on how to optimize off-grid preps for when the power is down due to a hurricane or a big storm. 
Well, Heather, I lived off-grid in Tennessee within about three miles of the Tennessee River. So while not quite as hot and humid as Florida, it was close during most of the year. Um, I also um, rode out Hurricane Irma in Florida, including the aftermath where we were without power for seven days and were taking care of an elderly family member. Uh, for purposes of this answer, I'm going to assume that you have a water filtration system, a reasonable amount of food storage, so I'll just focus on the power side of the equation. I would say the biggest power investment you can make is going to be a portable AC unit and a generator big enough to run it. Uh, these portable AC units run uh, or pull triple duty as a fan, dehumidifier, and air conditioner. An 8K BTU unit will run on a 3K generator. Some 2K generators will actually take it, but I'd go with a 3, uh, which is also big enough to run your fridge and keep your food good uh, during an extended power outage. If I personally lived in Florida, I would absolutely have a propane generator with a few 100-pound propane tanks. Uh, and I would make sure I've got the right regulator to use those 100-pound propane tanks uh, with the propane generator. Uh, that allows you to have both a cooking fuel as well as stable fuel for the generator. It's a lot easier to store 100 pounds of propane than the equivalent amount of gasoline. Uh, and then once you have this, you might add a few 12-volt batteries uh, just to take a little bit of that extra juice from the generator and throw it into the batteries now in, in times where you don't need your fridge or your uh, air conditioning unit running off of the generator, uh, you could run, you could charge, you know, laptops and phones and things like that. Uh, we actually have some uh, uh, little small fans, are probably about six inches in diameter, and they charge off of a USB cable. And uh, you know, one of those blowing on your face and one blowing on your back. Uh, when it's hot, uh, it actually helps out quite a bit. Uh, I've actually slept in, you know, 80 plus degree uh, inside house temperatures using that exact system. So, you know, some batteries to to uh, allow you to do some charging when you're not reliant, you know, when you don't have to have those big uh, uh, needs, it would be helpful. But first things first, I would get some propane and a propane generator. That's just going to do so much for you. Um, Matt asked the question, resources, tips, and who to talk to when doing a grid tie system, uh, making sure paperwork is done, power company, and state officials are happy. Well, Matt, this varies by state. Uh, every state has got their own regulations, and in a lot of places, you've got local utility companies that then also have their own regulations. So to answer this question specifically is impossible. What I would do if I were in your shoes is I would reach out to any state-level solar power trade association, uh, seia.org. That's a nationwide system, and they've got state-level chapters. That's a good one. Now, understand that most of the people who are in these associations are there for access to the utility companies, um, but there are companies as part of those groups that are also electrical contractors. I found electrical contractors who also do solar installations uh, will normally talk to you, talk to you about the process. Uh, they'll they'll be there to help you help answer questions for you and things like that. 
Now, of course, uh, you're, you know, you want to tell them, hey, I'm going to use you for the portions of the work that require a license. So I might do the mounting of the panels and hire a, a master electrician to do the actual connections because that's what the state might require. And in that case, I'd say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to review my system and make sure that all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. Uh, I'll do a little bit of this work and, and then the rest of it I'll bring you in to do. You know, I'll buy the, or I'll buy the components and then I'll have you do the installation uh, so that I'm not paying that markup. So uh, there's, there's definitely ways to work around that. Um, you know, work on a time and material basis. Uh, if you've got, you know, some wire that needs to be pulled, you could buy the wire from them and, and pull it yourself and then have them come in and do the connections, you know. So those type of things, uh, being your own general contractor, managing the project rather than writing a huge check for a turnkey system, that's how I would go about it if I were in your shoes. Uh, Leos asks, uh, what are you seeing in the price of panels? Are prices still dropping? Is it time to buy? Well, as you all might know, they ha we have a tariff on solar panels uh, that was enacted last year. Um, there's a portion of the of the year that at the very beginning that, that they don't apply. So basically, everyone's trying to get their panels in immediately to take advantage of the uh, the tariff free. And then after that, uh, everything else has tariffs on. The reality is, in terms of price of an entire system, the tariffs aren't really making a huge uh, dent. You know, if you're buying a megawatt of solar panels. Uh, because you're a utility trying to um, develop a brownfield site, then, okay, you're probably not going to do that job now. You're going to wait for the tariffs to, to fall off. If you're doing a uh, a house, you know, grid tie system or off-grid system, you can still get panels very cheaply. Uh, I am still seeing panels drop in price. Uh, one of the two primary companies that was... Um, lobbying the administration for these tariffs to go into effect in order to uh, protect U.S. manufacturing jobs has filed for bankruptcy. And so they're actually in the process of liquidating everything that they've got sitting in warehouses right now. Um, so I definitely like working with Sun Elec uh, or Sun Electronics, uh, sunelec.com. Uh, they've got, they're, they're buying from the right people and they're selling at the right price. Uh, you should be able to get panels uh, used in the 30 cents per watt range and brand new panels less than 40 cents per watt delivered to your house. Now, if you're buying onesie twosie, uh, you're going to pay more per watt because the shipping isn't spread out over the cost of a bunch of uh, panels. But in terms of the cost of the panels themselves, I think now is a good time. I think as the tariffs go down, which every year it's a little bit less uh, for the next three years and then it falls off. I think every year as the tariffs go down, you're going to see more utilities buying and, and putting these big systems in. So that's going to suck up supply. And that's going to that's gonna mean that the, the cheap panels that have been sitting warehouses for three years, they're going to get sucked up. Uh, the new panels coming in are going to have the tariffs on them. I think now is probably a good time. I could be completely wrong. Uh, it, they may still drop for another couple of years before we hit the, the bottom and they start coming back up. Or they may keep dropping. Um, the reality is, is that on most systems these days, uh, the panels, while the most expensive part are the easiest to get and, and they're definitely cheaper per watt than they ever have been before. Uh, so I would not let 
I would not sit around and wait for prices to drop. If I had the money and I was ready to do a system, I would absolutely pull the trigger now. Um, you know, I, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't. They could go in either direction, but the prices are great right now. Well, hey, with that being said, uh, guys, keep on getting the questions into Jack, and I will keep on answering them. And uh, we do have the solar workshop coming up on the 16th, 17th, and 18th. Really, the instruction is on the 17th and 18th of August. The cost is $300. Right now, I have two seats left. So uh, send me an email at hackmysolar at gmail.com if you'd like to scoop up one of those last couple of seats. And with that being said, everyone have a great day. So just real quick on the uh, how the tariffs are going to affect this and you know moving the items off the shelves and in the future we're going to have the tariff. I, I, I see long-term solar continuing to drop in price. I do think there might be this kind of middle bubble where prices go up for a while, so this might be a, a really good time to buy. I think when you make a buying decision that you need to look at your needs and your budget now. And unless we're talking about something that's brand new technology and at this ridiculous price premium, then if everything works for you now, go ahead with it. Because, you know, how long are you going to wait? Like, stuff always gets cheaper eventually. So what I mean by that is, if you want to buy a 65-inch television today, go ahead. If you have the money and that's what you want, go ahead and buy it. Uh, but I remember when we got our first big screen TV, and it was 48 inches, and it was thousands of dollars. And that was probably a mistake. Because it was like within a year, prices just started sliding. So when you're looking at any tech, to me, you look at, like, is this a brand new tech that's selling at a ridiculous premium that I absolutely know is going to come down? If the answer is yes, then wait. Otherwise, make the decision based on current needs and budget and what it's going to give you in your life. Um, I do think you, there is a floor for how low solar and, and storage can go, but I think we're a long way from it. I think it'll be a very long, slow And I think the, the other thing you have to realize is with inflation, flat pricing is declining pricing. So that's that's probably going to factor into this as well over time. Uh, next up, we have a question for Nicole Sauce on making tomato sauce, among other things to do with tomatoes. Nicole, take it away. Hey, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from livingfreeantennessee.com with a question from the MeWe group from a fellow named James. He popped in on MeWe Monday. That's 10 a.m. Monday on the TSP forum over on MeWe. And he asked, what recommendations do you have for a food mill and or other ways of removing tomato seeds prior to canning? And I can only assume from his question that he has a lot of tomatoes to can. And, y'all, it's been a great tomato year here, too. So I've been canning my nose off. So let's start about first, why would you even remove the seeds in your tomatoes? Uh, you don't have to. So you can totally can tomatoes with the seeds, but they do add an unfortunate mouthfeel. So, like, I do stewed tomatoes. I don't worry too much about the seeds in the, those, but other people don't like it. And if you're making sauce, the seeds can, and skins can trigger indigestion in people and acid reflux. So a lot of people like to get those out so they don't like mess up the mouthfeel of their sauces. And it's super easy to get them out manually. Here's what you do. You, you bring a pot of water to a boil and you throw your tomatoes in 
and you leave them in for 60 seconds to a minute and a half, depending on the kind of tomatoes. I find that like a good saucing tomato, aroma tomato takes about a minute 45 to loosen the skin and more of a, I don't know what you call it, like a sandwich tomato or beefsteak. Those take, you know, 30 to 60 seconds. Anyway, you, you put them in there for that long. Fish them out with a slotted spoon. Put them in cold water in your sink so they cool down real fast. That loosens the skins, and the skins come right off. From there, all you have to do is just run your fingers up the tomato in the the natural ridges that are formed, and the seeds come right out. And you end up with this tomato that looks a little bit funny because it's like it has wings all the way around. But that's the way you do it manually. You don't have to use a food mill. However, James must have what I had this weekend, which was about 40 pounds of tomatoes to can. And he's like, that's going to take way too long. So what do I use? Well, I like to use a tomato cone or it's it's called a food press. It's a tomato cone. It's a cone-shaped thing that has holes in it has a rack that it sits on, and then it has something that looks kind of like a triangularly shaped rolling pin. And I got this thing at a barn sale from an old dude who, well, from the daughter of an old dude who died. So I got an antique one. It is sort of aluminum-y sort of material. It's not stainless steel. The thing works like a charm. And here's what you do. You, You don't even have to skin your tomatoes, guys. You just take your tomatoes, toss them in your food processor or blender and go and then you pour that into the cone and you take the the um, rolling pin thing and you move it around it pushes all of the tomato saucy stuff through the holes and keeps the seeds and the skin bits inside the cone and then you dump out those for your chickens and you take the sauce and you cook that down and you can it that's that's the way you do that. Now, if you're trying to do stewed tomatoes, you're going to have to manually remove, remove them. Otherwise, you're going to end up with sauce because any of the methods that remove the seeds will end up turning it into mush. But I went out and looked online for different tomato cones. They make ones out of stainless steel. I'm concerned about their sturdiness because what I like about mine is the metal that I'm pressing the tomato pulp through. It's really thick and sturdy. So I have not personally tested the stainless ones. I did find one. They didn't have them on Amazon of all things, but I did find one at doitbest.com. And I've put a link in the email to Jack to share. So that's the one I would buy if I was going to buy a new one. But really, if you just go to like flea markets and other things, I think you may find an old school one. And I think those are better. Layman's used to carry these. And this year, for some reason, they don't anymore, which is really sad because there are other tomato mills, and not all tomato mills are made the same. And let me tell you, I have been on tomato adventures for years because I love them so much. Here's ones I've tried and hated. The KitchenAid attachment. The KitchenAid attachment, like, it's great. You can have the KitchenAid. It's one appliance. It does everything you need, right? No. It takes for flipping ever to pulp any amount of tomato to get the seeds and the skins off or just the seeds out by running it through that cone attachment they have that is hardly worth it. And probably every 15 minutes you're pulling the darn thing off to clean it out and unclog it. So I don't really like that attachment. I had it. I used it for one season. I cried about nine times because it took so long and I got rid of the thing. So 
KitchenAid, don't love it. Then I, I've also done what's called the Deluxe Food Strainer, which is a hand crank strainer with a bowl, and you push the tomatoes down with a, a stamping tool, and you crank the handle, and it puts it through this thing, much like the KitchenAid, only bigger, and pulls out the seeds. And if you have the skins, if you've done what I've done, what I do in that case when I'm using one of those, which is I don't bother skinning them, it pulls those out too, and it was slower than the tomato cone. Like I can throw my tomatoes into the tomato cone and it's done lickety split. In the deluxe food strainer, it took a little bit longer. I felt like I got a little bit more pulp out, but it was so messy. It like, it leaked, the gasket didn't hold up quite right. And so there was always this drip of tomato juice coming out of it. And like epic, like put a tarp down in your kitchen scale messy. So I put that up for sale and a friend of mine was like, hey, I'll buy it. And I'm like, no, I'll just give it to you. And here's why I hate it. And I apparently he's used it and loved it. I'm telling you guys, this cone thing, way better than that. It's not very messy, super easy to use. And you just in between batches, scrape out the skins and the seeds and you're done. So my advice is find a cone if you can. If you know, if you don't use a link, just go to flea markets, go to auctions, and see what people are getting rid of. Because a lot of people from former times pass on. Their kids come in. They are like, we don't know all this junk. They have a big auction. They auction off really cool stuff that's very useful, like the tomato cone. As an aside, since you're asking about tomatoes, I have a couple of tricks for speeding up sauce making. The first one is. Tomatoes always seem to come on in the hottest days of summer all at once, and it can be really overwhelming because you have other things to do, like pull weeds or pick your beans and process those. Tomatoes are something that are really easy to freeze and process later. So when I get overwhelmed with tomatoes, I'll throw them in the freezer, and about October when my house is a little bit cold, that's when I'll can them so I don't have to heat up the house now. And the great thing about that if you're doing sauce is you freeze them, you bring them out, let them defrost, and what happens is the cell cellular structure inside the tomato has expanded, burst the cell walls, and water comes out of those tomatoes as they defrost. And you leave the water behind, and then you sauce up your tomatoes, pull the seeds out, make sure the skins are off, right? You put them through your cone, and you end up with a much thicker sauce to start with because all of that water that came out when they were defrosting, you don't have to cook that off. You can actually can that and use that in stews. It's really great. You just use the uh, tomato tomato juice canning times for that. But that's a way to speed up sauce making. Another way to do it if you don't want to freeze is to grind them up, put them through your tomato cone or through any food mill to get the seeds out or manually skin them and seed them and then grind them up. And then you pour that sauce into what I call a tomato shirt. A tomato shirt is like a brand new white undershirt. You sew up the bottom. And you put a rope through the arms and hang it over a, you know, a pot or a sink and you pour the tomato juice in through the neck and it drips through and just the tomato water comes out. And if you let it sit for like 15 minutes or so, so I'll just be grinding them and let it go until the shirt's full and then let it sit for 15 minutes. Dump that pulp back out of the neck into your cook down pot for the tomato sauce it's a lot thicker. It'll cut your cook down time for a good spaghetti sauce or tomato sauce in about half. So I just, I thought I'd throw that out there since, since it sounds like you've got James, that you've got 
tomatoes to process. Anyway, thanks so much for the questions. Keep them coming. Anything from marketing to coffee to websites to food preservation of all things. Yep. And cooking. I'm game for it. And that's part of why I've written the book, Cook With What You Have. So if you haven't heard, I just released a cookbook, Cook With What You Have. I spent my life just sort of cooking with what's nearby. And I thought, well, it'd be fun to share with how this works because I know so many people who are stuck on the recipe, so to speak. So it's got a few chapters by topic that walks you through, you know, how to cook some things. It has recipes, but then it says, but if you don't have that, here's some things you can substitute. So check it out. It's over at Amazon. And also, if you want awesome coffee, and we are ramping up right now, we've got some really good Bolivian up there. Go to hollerroast.com. Okay, guys, with that, go out, make it a great week. So, so good stuff. I'll just tell you my favorite way to preserve tomatoes is dehydrate them. Uh, to me, it is just simplicity personified, man. You, if you have cherry tomatoes, you cut them in half. If you have, you know, other tomatoes, you cut them into the size you slices about the size you want. You throw them in the Excalibur, you turn it on, and about 24 hours later, you have perfectly dehydrated tomatoes. You throw them in a jar, you put a lid on them. They last for as long as you do. Now, if you want to make tomato sauce, i.e. something akin to pasta sauce, um, there is some limitations then on how good of a product I guess you would get. But I am not big personally on skinning things with edible skins or on removing seeds from things that have edible seed. So I have made some pretty awesome tomato-based dishes just rehydrating and simmering dehydrated tomatoes. And I am not opposed to making tomato sauce, you know, in the sauce way. Um, I absolutely agree on freezing them and then processing them when you have time. That is, that actually is a better way to do, to, like, because what Nicole said, a better way to do tomato sauce anyway. But really think about adding dehydration to your regime. And you don't have to do one or the other. You can do some of both. But I think if you start... Uh, dehydrating tomatoes, you're going to find that you really enjoy it. I may do a segment next week on one of the shows next week on uh, making tomatoes in in oil. So, so like sun-dried tomatoes and oil-type tomatoes from dehydrated tomatoes. It's actually really easy to do, and as long as you do it right, it's completely safe. There's a very small concern about botulism anytime you do something in an anaerobic environment, uh, but botulism needs multiple things, and one is water. And if you were using truly dehydrated tomatoes with no water in them, then we're not going to have botulism. All right. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take the next one. Um, this one we have is uh, just an update from Paul Wheaton on what's been going on with Wheaton Labs in uh, the wilds of Montana. He and uh, Jocelyn Campbell have teamed up on this one, and here we go. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from permies.com. I'm here with Jocelyn Campbell. Say yes. Hi. hi. And we're also with Wheaton Labs in Montana. Well, and that's what Jack asked us to do an update yes. on, on all the things going on here at Wheaton Labs. And so, um, first of all, thanks so much, Jack, for your support for our Kickstarter, uh, $150,000. That was a massive record, not only in the amount of money I've ever made on a Kickstarter, but also... Uh, the number of people, I think it was 2,700-some people. It was just, just huge. Um, the book is now at the printer. Yes. 
That's exciting. Uh, yeah, it's it's moving along so fast, and I'm glad we're I'm glad we're wrapping this up. Boy, sure, I had I had no idea it took this much work to make a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there uh, for some supporters that qualify for the book signing party that we don't have a date for that just yet. We have to. We want to make sure the books will be in hand <laughs> yeah. for that. It'll probably be around the end of August, beginning yeah. of September, or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, news. Uh, we, we wrapped up the PDC and ATC this year. Um, uh, we had a PDC that was for scientists, engineers, and architects. For new people, PDC is Permaculture Design Course. I think Jack's people know that. Probably. Uh, yeah. Um, and so- ATC is Appropriate Technology Course. Right. Um, and so for the PDC, uh, Alan Bucker taught it. I, it's, it, I mean, it's at a, a very advanced level. And so, um, it's a bit like drinking from the fire hose. I think most people who enjoy a PDC would not enjoy this PDC. Cause it's, it's, and then uh, at the same time, a lot of bibliography through the course, a lot of, uh, you know, cited stuff. And then also they'll patch in some, uh, experts in a variety of fields, uh, during the course. But, um, uh, and uh, the other thing is, is the pace is really strong. Um, it's 14 hours a day for 14 days. And so, uh, uh, but our students appeared to love it. We did a podcast on the last day. And uh, I think the result was as nobody was feeling exhausted, they were feeling very full of information, and everybody uh, loved it. But it's like it's not for everybody. It's it's for people who can take in a lot of information at once or um, have a lot of permaculture knowledge already. And uh, we were kind of talking about it, and, and we were kind of uh, speculating that it might have twice as much information as what's in Jeff Lawton's online PDC and probably three times as much as what's in a, a regular PDC. I kind of think it would be great to get some people from uh, the online PDC to come and try this next year and get some real direct... We should have Jack come! Jack! 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 <laughs> you should come! <laughs> That'd be awesome. The appropriate technology course was also a big success. Uh, we, we made a big upgrade to uh, one of our rocket water heaters. For uh, the showers. Yeah, for the mm-hmm. one for the showers. Because we had two rocket water heaters. So the one for the showers is a pressurized system. Very dangerous. Uh, but we uh, gave it a big up. It was burning a little dirty. And uh, so we made it burn much cleaner. It got a big over. I think it's it went from being a little bit of a edge case uh, benefit thing to something really magnificent. Yeah. Uh, the, the students made uh, tools as uh, and everybody got. Oh, we made a rocket forge. And uh, that was working really well. They had some cold chisels with that, some draw knives. Um, uh, we also did a lot with different kinds of uh, lime paints and milk paints. Uh, I think that turned out really nice. Right. A yeah. lot of people who came um, were interested in MUD's natural building expertise, so they were really excited to do cob and the, and the natural paints. The big showpiece was the solar glass recycler. We did a rocket glass recycler. Mm-hmm. That worked, like, right off. <laughs> it was yeah. That was cool. So yeah. we're going to make glass tiles out of recycled glass. So old glass, because we don't have re- glass recycling in our area. Right. And right. so we're going to, we now have the ability to recycle glass. But the solar, we have a big Fresnel lens. And so we're using that. And, and the experimentation went on after the ATC. We had a couple of people that attended the PDC and ATC and they stayed here. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and, and so that kept going on. Almost done. Seeing the glasses melting with the solar, stuff, but it's like not quite a full um, uh, tile yet. Yeah, there's a great thread about that on Permies, about the solar glass recycler. 
the Wafati that we call Allerton Abbey uh, is going to be ready for the annualized thermal inertia test this winter and uh, is getting finished up. And right now they're doing a lot of cob work and plaster work to make it look really beautiful. It is looking amazing. So Wafati is your earth-sheltered cabin design. Right, an above-ground structure. Uh, I think I've talked about Wafati in one of Jack's episodes, like episode 600-something. Right, 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 right. Okay. Um, uh, we've got, oh, we've got pep events coming mid-September, and so, uh, I think we start off with a lot of stuff about, um, uh, wild edibles, foraging, and making, uh, medicinals, and then we're going to move into, um, earthworks and gardening, and then we're going to be doing, uh, a lot, we call it Woody Week, we're going to be doing a lot of roundwood timber framing and woodland care. Uh, and, and you the, probably talked about PEP, too, but PEP is permaculture experience, according to Paul, and it's basically an, a certification and education course or, or process that you get certified on permies that you've done this thing, that, yeah. which are basically homestead skills. It's a free thing. Anybody can do it. It's yeah. all set up at permies right now. A lot of people have been getting certified for all the little bits and bobs. And uh, costs, it costs nothing. But some people want to come here and, and like, get right. the experience. Because, like, if you live in a place where you don't have access to the ability to build a big hugel culture, which, by the way, building a hugel culture with uh, an excavator is one of the things we're going to be able to do. Right, yeah. We have excavators. We have trees. We have, you know, a lot of tools and equipment and resources, natural and man-made, that a lot of people don't have at their place. And we wrap it all up with Rocket Week which is going to be like we've got a dozen different rocket mass heaters and rocket ovens and rocket stoves and rocket this and that and rocket, rocket, rocket. And so get all the experiences with those as well as all the other things. All right. So right now we have 11 people here. Um, The uh, We have the boot camp program is going pretty strong, but we do have two openings still. Um, And it's mostly the boots that are doing the stuff with the cob work and uh, junk pole fence and uh, gardening and things like that. And um, uh, a lot of them came for just a little while, and they seem to be sticking around for for long term. That's another thing, too, is that when you're in the boot camp and you've been here a month, you get an acre to play with. Yes. And and some of the people here have just picked their acre in Ant Village and they're super, super excited and <laughs> starting to garden and do things up there already. So, And it's a really smooth, awesome group right now. Just, you know, I want everybody here to live here forever. <laughs> it has been a good group. And yeah. I've got a, and I think that we have a uh, some anyway, that's a. We just recorded a podcast about how we got to be that good, and it's because of it's like the problem is the solution. So some people that have suggested things are bad, but they are they they're clearly not exactly great people. Anyway, that's a whole nother discussion for another day. Right, we're out of time. Thanks, Jack. Thanks. So, um, will I go to Montana for Paul's course? I I don't know. Um, I certainly would love to support it. Uh, it's the time that it takes to do something like that out of pocket from here and still giving my wife a good vacation and things like that every year. Now, I do have an announcement of somewhere where I most likely will be next year. I do have to talk uh, to Free State Project about this, but they have asked me so many times I can't see where we can't work it out. Um, I have talked Dorothy into vacationing next year in you know, kind of maybe New Hampshire and some White Mountain activity and then up into maybe Maine and Acadia. 
and it just so happens that Porkfest, that the Free State Project does every year, is in the White Mountains. So we can simply extend our vacation a few days. So I will probably be, maybe not at the entire duration of it, but I probably will finally say yes and go do Porkfest next year. So if you know the people behind Porkfest, they don't know yet. You can tell them and be the one that lets them know that I will be uh, getting in touch with them soon about starting uh, on arrangements for, for doing that. I think that will be fun. All right. Uh, next up, I have a question for John Pugliano on the gold and silver ratio. John, give us the gold standard answer. See what I did there? All right. Go ahead, John. Hey, TSP. Today, our financial question comes from Brian, and he's asking about the gold-silver ratio. And so specifically, he says, right now, silver is favored at something like 85 to 1 against gold. So if someone bought, say, 80 ounces of silver, waited until the ratio fell to, say, 40 to 1, and then they'd be able to buy 2 ounces of gold. If then they waited until the ratio reversed back to 80 to 1, then sold the gold for silver. Okay, you see where he's going with his question. What he's asking is, is that can you use the gold to silver ratio to swing trade and time the market to move in and out of gold or, for that matter, just in and out of U.S. dollars? Well, the short answer is yes, absolutely. But the more complicated and really the more realistic answer is not necessarily. Here are my thoughts. You're absolutely right to be looking at relationships between how two items correlate when it comes to price. In fact, I think that's really one of the best trading strategies to use because as you'll often hear me say, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. But what I can do is I can look at historical data and whether that's commodity prices, stock prices, currency fluctuation, you can look at any type of marketable product that has a price. And you can try and look for correlations between that price and other factors. It could be against another asset class. It could be against a currency. It could be against a weather pattern. I mean, just think of it on a really broad scale, something like El Nino or sunspots or other type of weather patterns that come on a cyclical basis. Well, that obviously has an impact on agriculture. So if you dig into the data deep enough, you can probably find cyclical correlations where certain weather patterns would correlate to the price of corn or soybeans, or for that matter, to the sale of farm machinery or you know real estate farmland in the Midwest. That's just a simple example, but you can see that there are definite patterns to things. And so yes, when it comes to trading, I'm very much in favor for looking for correlations between two price points. Having said that though, you have to be really careful because it's not as simple or as reliable as it may sound. And just to give you a quick analogy, think about it this way. If you take your left hand and you plunge it into boiling water, and you take your right hand and you stick it into a bucket of ice water, well, on average, your hands are going to be comfortable. But you know, in reality, that's not the way it's going to work. You're going to get frostbite on one hand, and you're going to get severe burns on the other. And that sounds absurd, but if you think about it, that's really a good example for what's going on in the market. In particular, you talked about the gold-silver ratio. Well, I'm looking at a chart right now that goes back to, oh, about the 80s. And I would say, on average, over the last 35, 40 years, the relationship between the price of gold and the price of silver, on average, is probably right around 60, maybe 65. So that's a pretty good, reliable relationship. And we can try and swing trade that. 
But the problem with that is just like my example of sticking your two hands in two different buckets of water with different temperatures, even though that relationship over, say, you know, the last four decades is well established, it isn't as simple as moving into silver when the relationship is low and moving out of silver when the relationship is high. And the problem with that is, is that there's wide spanses of time between when those points occur. For example, right now we are at a really extreme peak, well into the 80 or even 90 to 1 ratio. But much like I described the bucket of water scenario, the average correlation of 60 or 65 between gold and silver can fluctuate significantly over long periods of time. For example, from about 1970 till about 1985, so a 15-year span, the gold-silver relationship was always below 60. Never even got close to 60 until you got into the mid and late 80s. And then for almost another two decades, the ratio stayed firmly above 60. And in fact, it was about this time, somewhere around late 80s, early 90s, when the silver-gold ratio got up to about where we are right now. And then over the last 20 years or so, the relationship between gold and silver has fluctuated quite a bit above and below that 60 to 1 ratio. But having said that, you still would have to be a very patient investor because for the most part, these cycles are still occurring over, you know, two to three, maybe five year periods. So the problem with using this ratio to swing trade between gold and silver isn't that it wouldn't work. It's just that the longevity of it is really working against you. The ratio has been above 60 to 1 going back to, I don't know, maybe 2012, 2013. We're talking six to seven years, and at these elevated levels we're at now, you know, it could still take another three or four longer years just to get back down to 60. You just don't know. And so it isn't that the math doesn't work or that the numbers are wrong. It's just that the duration of the trade is probably too long for most people's investment horizons. Hey, the other thing I want to mention is, is that the argument is that gold is too expensive and silver is too cheap. But that's not necessarily the case. That gap in the relationship can be tightened not only by the price of silver coming up, but conversely, by the price of gold coming down. And so right now, even though the relationship is extremely high, it doesn't necessarily mean that silver is going to $20 or $30. It could mean that the price of gold is going to drop down to $1,100 or $1,200. That wouldn't be unusual given the price action we've seen in gold over the last six or seven years. So what I'd encourage you to do that no matter what you're investing in, whether it's precious metals or real estate or the stock market, doesn't matter what it is, definitely look for the mathematical correlations, but also beyond the mathematical side of it, try and understand what's going on between supply and demand. Because it's really the market forces of supply and demand that are going to dictate the price. So what's going on with silver production? Are there new sources of supply coming online or are there better and more efficient manufacturing techniques that require less use of silver in industrial applications or perhaps has the recycling or reclamation of silver coming out of scrap products? You know, is there more of a supply there? And then what about the demand side? You know, what types of industrial applications like electronic vehicles or solar panels is silver being used in? And how likely is there a substitute to take silver out of applications? So that relationship between supply and demand is constantly going to be changing. Think about a non-precious metal like copper. When I was a kid, you know, back in the 1960s, I would say that every house that was built had copper plumbing. 
but over the last 50 years, I would say that virtually all of the residential copper pipe has been replaced with PVC plastic. So I just recommend that you be careful. There's a lot of factors that go into that relationship. Hey, one other thing that I don't have time to cover, but one reason right now that we may be seeing such an elevated disparity between the price of gold and silver is that in recent years, we've seen a lot of central banks starting to build up their gold reserves. And since central banks buy gold and they don't buy silver, that could be part of the explanation for why the price of gold is so much higher than the current price for silver. But hey, that's a discussion for another day. Thanks for your question. And hey, I also want to wish Jack a happy birthday. Well, for the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. All right, so good stuff from Poog, and thank you for wishing me happy expelled from a birth canal day. Anyway, um, this week I had a segment queued up for Monday's show, and I managed to screw it up and not include it in the show. And this is a question that came in from Brent, so I'd like to answer it today. Brent says, am I crazy for wanting to cash out my 401k? We moved from central PA to mid-Missouri almost two years ago. We are happy here, but we paid a little bit too much for our house at the end of the day. We are still in the East Coast mentality, and you can make more, and everything costs more there. You know, I am considering leaving my job of 18 years, transferred out of here to work for the state as a mechanic, and my pay would be dropping as I net around 4200 a month. The state would only pay around 3400 a month. It would be a 40-hour-a-week job as opposed to the 55 hours I put in now for a trash company. I have 144K in my 401K. I'm considering when I leave this job, pulling it out and putting around 100K on my house and refinancing to nearly cut the payment in half. I owe currently 170-ish on the mortgage. I'm trying to start a home inspection business and working 55 hours a week. If I cut the mortgage payment, it will be much easier to feel secure I have a family support and make those payments if and when I would take my business full-time. So the 40-hour-a-week job might just be temporary. I want to get the business off the ground and be able to spend more time with my family and enjoy our 10 acres that is slowly turning into a great homestead, Brent from Missouri. My overall gut is no, 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 don't do it. But I'm going to try to take a couple different looks at this for you. Um, let's start out. With the payment on a $170,000 house, it, everything changes because of taxes, insurance, etc. But generally about, about $1,700. It's, and it's, it, to, with today's interest rates, it's lower than that. But if we go high and say that, uh, then you know, you're looking at about $800 that you would save forever, you know, so to say, by taking this money out and reducing your payment if we actually reduced it by half and we're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars to do that and once we make this decision that money is gone and we have taken from the retirement nest egg heavily and all we've saved is eight hundred dollars a month let's do a little bit of math and see if maybe we have another way we could do this understand that's ninety six hundred dollars a year So if, if, if saving $800 would really make you that much more secure while you take a run at this building of a business and switching jobs to something that's a normal full-time job instead of, you know, uh, 55 hours plus a business, I, I get it, okay? Um, it's not like you're talking about going to work part-time for Dollar General, working 20 hours a week. You're talking about cutting your hours to 40 hours. 
But let's say that you... How long do you think you need, all right, to get this business either to fly or not fly? And if you said you needed two years, okay, then you need about $20,000. So, <laughs> I would be much more comfortable if you were going to do a cash out instead of cashing out to $100,000, which you're going to have to take Damn near all of it to get $100,000 because you're going to pay interest and penalties on it because I doubt we're looking at a Roth situation here since we're talking about a 401. So if we roll this into an IRA, now we get complete and total control over it. If we said we needed two years, we could take out probably about $30,000, pay the, 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 the penalty to, to upgrade, okay, and then put all that money in a savings account, and only draw from it as much as needed to make do. Now we got a two-year cushion. Well, what about a one-year cushion? The less we take, the less we're going to pay in penalties. Because we're going to pay penalties, but if this is not a Roth situation, and it probably isn't, we're going to pay on that as though it's income. It's going to actually push our tax bracket up. So if you go and take out that much money from a 401k this year, this tax year, you're going to effectively create an income for yourself. That, that, that's the way that works because it was tax deferred. It wasn't supposed to be for now. So if you're going to take anything, I would take a partial create a cushion. And I would think really long and hard before you do that. Let me put it another way. How much does it take to make an extra $800 a month? That's a question you have to answer for yourself. But my, see, one of the things you didn't tell me is how old you are. But you had a job for 18 years. So I'm going to say you're in your 40s. So we're at 20-ish years from retirement. We only have $140,000 put away. And we're talking about wiping it almost to zero. You can see why I have a problem with that. So my overall recommendation is don't do it, but if you're going to take this transition, I want you to think about the fact that you could take, you know, 10 grand a year out for five years while the money still grows and be ahead and give yourself a five-year cushion. Because it's not like every time you do it, they penalize you worse. So... To me, if you're going to go to that well, let's take what we need and let's build, let's build our lifestyle to support the decisions we've made. What are other ways? You've got to think, like, what are other ways? We just did a segment. Of, what if you took $10,000, built a tiny house, and rented it? Do you, like, I'm not saying to do that. I'm just saying we need to get back from this concept of this is the solution And say to ourselves, what are all the what are all my tools? What are all my resources? And let's not think conventionally. But I can you, you can do what you want, right? I'm not one of these idiots that runs a podcast or a radio show. And you call it. I can't let you do that. No, I I don't let you do shit, right? You do what you want to do. But I can't endorse the decision for a man in his 40s to wipe out his 401k. And in this case, you're not even paying a house off. You're just resetting a mortgage to, you know, what, about $80,000, $85,000. You know, you're in pretty good shape with an $85,000 mortgage with your income, but you're not in good shape with, you know, $10,000 left in your retirement account relying on Social Security. And you see, my other plan thing would be, okay, once you did this, what does your investment plan look like going forward? 
how much money are you going to be kicking back into your investments? Because you're going to have to invest, you know, well over that $800 a month back in to catch up. So you really, really got to think if this is really what you want to do here. Now, when it comes to thinking unconventionally, I want to share with you a story today that is the item of the day for T-SPAS. So, you know, I don't think I really need to say this every day, but I do anyway because there's new people every day. If you want to support this show, one of the ways you can do it is do your online shopping at a website, which is really just a page on my site with a URL that redirects to it, and that's tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, no matter what you buy, you, you help the survival podcast, even if it's not something that's there, as long as you start there. It's all Amazon reviews and stuff like that, okay? Um, this book was given to me as a gift. It's called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. It was given to me when I was in my early 20s by someone that said, just by some of the things you said, I think you need to read this book. And today when I selected it, I wasn't even really thinking up front about doing a real segment on this. And then certain things came into view as I put this episode together, and certain things were going on in life in general. And I thought, this is really something that needs to be said to explain today. And lo and behold, when I went to Amazon to check, price check it, make sure it's available, all that stuff, make sure my review was accurate, uh, prices change. It's a very old book, again, written in the early 70s. Um, I noticed that there was an Audible version of it and that there was a sample of that Audible version that you could listen to. So I listened to it. It's the very beginning of the book, and it's about a minute and a half. What I want to do for you right now, I want to play that for you. And I want to come back and talk about the current state of affairs in the world, what we're seeing in the political circus on both sides, and how this actually relates, even though this book is something that most people see is a book about spirituality. So here we go. It was morning, and the new sun sparkled gold across the ripples of a gentle sea. A mile from shore, a fishing boat chummed the water and the word for breakfast flock flashed through the air till a crowd of a thousand seagulls came to dodge and fight for bits of food. It was another busy day beginning. But way off alone, out by himself, beyond boat and shore, Jonathan Livingston Seagull was practicing. A hundred feet in the sky, he lowered his webbed feet, lifted his beak, and strained to hold a painful, hard, twisting curve through his wings. The curve meant that he would fly slowly, and now he slowed until the wind was a whisper in his face, until the ocean stood still beneath him. He narrowed his eyes in fierce concentration, held his breath, forced one single more inch of curve... Then his feathers ruffled, he stalled and fell. Seagulls, as you know, never falter, never stall. To stall in the air is for them disgrace, and it is dishonor. But Jonathan Livingston Seagull, unashamed, stretching his wings again in that trembling hard curve, slowing, slowing, and stalling once more, was no ordinary bird. Most gulls don't... So... I want you to just think about society as a whole. And I want you to think about the concept of this flock. And everybody does everything the same way. And everybody fights over scraps 
to feed themselves every day. And anybody that does things in a different way is ostracized and put down. And then what is this what is this scene about? Is this scene really about a seagull that will teach other seagulls and eventually transcend into different levels of life, which is what the story is about from a plot line? Or is this story about our society and how it works? Is there a better description of our society? And I don't just mean the bottom levels. I mean the middle class, the upper middle class, the affluent, the politicians. Is there a better description of all of it than a giant mob fighting over scraps and the ones that are the best at getting the scraps get the most breakfast and that anybody who says, I do not want to be part of this system, I want to find something better, there has to be more being put down and ostracized. Is there? I don't think there is. When... When I listened to that this morning, I could literally in my head see the, the, the train wreck that was what limited portion of the Democrat debates I had watched. And I knew that if things had been reversed, and this was 20 Republicans, it would be the same train wreck. Fighting over scraps. In this case, they want the big scraps. The scraps that are the power to steal scraps from other people. But if you look at society in all of like we would call the class levels... At each level, there is a competition for success, and there is a fight, and anybody that goes outside of the agreed-upon terms of the way things are supposed to be is ostracized. Sounds totally unrelated, but I have a nephew. His wife is very attractive. She's an Instagram model. Uh, she does some very racy, very sexy photos, but nothing, nothing that you couldn't put on TV, nothing that you couldn't put... In the Sports Illustrated uh, Swimsuit Edition magazine that they sell on the shelf, at the checkout, at the grocery store. However, some of the family have really ostracized them and looks down on them and calls it porn and other stupid shit like that. Now, here's the thing. If that woman had gone to an agent and somehow made it through the gauntlet and become a successful model and was on the cover of that swimsuit edition of Sports Illustrated with water dripping off of her in some ways way more suggestive than what she's doing then everybody would think it was wonderful because you followed the rules. But God help you if you break out of the rules and do things your own way. And this is the big thing. Every single solution, every single solution to the problems we have today requires that. There is no solution to a big problem or even a small problem like how do I better my own life that doesn't require breaking out of the mindset that got us here. It is, it is remarkably simple when you think about the reality there. Yesterday I quoted Albert Einstein and he said that there were only two ways to live life. One was though nothing was a miracle, and the other as though everything was a miracle. As we know, the man was a genius, certifiable genius. He also said something else that pertains really to this. And you know what it is. We can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. And in that alone, we know that there is no solution 
to any significant problem that does not require breaking out of the current level of mindset. We cannot fix the school system, for instance, by putting more money into the school system that is broken. You can't do it. It's not possible. It's another Einstein quote, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, and I would add to it more and more of it, and expecting a different result. We can't fix that problem with the mindset that created the problem. An institution that looks more like a prison than a school now. More of it will make it more like a prison. It will make the problems worse. It will not make them better. You could double teacher salaries. You'd have a lot of happy teachers for about a year before they would screw up their lives financially anyway because they haven't learned to manage money yet, which is the real problem. And the schools would not get any better. I'm telling you right now, they would not. You could build 10 more schools in every major market. They will not get better. You can't fix it because you're using the same way. And when you say that, you get anger and rage from people. Right now, I have people mad at me. How dare you say that? People are more angered by the truth than they are by a lie. People love even blatant lies as long as it doesn't disrupt their belief system. You want somebody mad? Tell them their vote doesn't matter. They flip their shit. They start cursing. They get angry as hell. And you say, so? Do you think you're... Ah, of course it does! Ah! People died for you right ah! Okay, now you're just screaming and you're being incoherent. It's like autistic level screeching. But, so you're telling me that if you didn't vote last year, the election results would have changed. Well, no, but, okay, stop. So now you're angry because I gave you the truth. And that's what this book is about. Rage at the truth. In this book, this seagull, who is, you know, anamorphized, which means to be made like human, for the purpose of telling the story, discovers things like, if I shape my wings like a falcon, I can fly like a falcon. But the flock elders are angry because, well, seagulls aren't supposed to fly like falcons. They're supposed to fight for scraps, not be daring. Not dive like an eagle into the deeper water and get the better fish. But something happens to Jonathan Livingston Seagull over this time. Others start to look at him because he doesn't fight the flock. He doesn't stay with the flock. He goes off on his own, but where he can still be seen. And he perfects his craft. And he finds joy, even in loneliness that comes with it. And some others become his students. And they learn to fly with him. And then they're ostracized by the society fighting over scraps, even though they're so much happier. And as his movement grows, it gets to a point where he's gone as far as he can in this movement. And in the story, he transcends to the next level of existence. We would call that life after death. But everything in literature is a metaphor. It's a new movement, a new challenge. Once we have taken solutions to their limits, if we still have problems, it's time for the next level of solution. And this must be applied. So you can sit around and bitch and whine and piss and moan and be angry that this fundamental truth is ignored and that these really big problems are going nowhere until someone breaks out, or you can be the effing person that breaks 
out. And you might say, well, these problems that I'm really concerned about are bigger than me. Maybe they are. Then stop worrying about those problems and find the ones that you can fix in your life and break out and fix those. Transcend the mentality that got you where you are, the things that you don't like about where you are. Doing more of the things that got you there will not get you out. It can't. It is, you're literally insane if you think the things you've done to get where you are can get you out. Now, if there's things you like, then you keep doing the things that got you there. But all the things you look at in your life, you're like, I don't want this. How did you get there? What did you do? What are the habits, the behaviors, the intentions, the thoughts, the deeds, the behaviors that got you there? Stop. Find a new way. And you just might find at some point that if you do enough of that, while you will be ostracized, while people will shake their heads, someone might show up. Someone might show up and say, hey, how did you do this? And then another person. Another person. And then that thing that you thought was way too big for you to influence, one of your students or your student's students, you never even knew were your students may be out impacting it. It all starts in your backyard. It all starts with you. But it all starts with this. Anytime there's a problem, there will be an apparent obvious solution. That apparent obvious solution sometimes will be the right one. Don't get me wrong. I'm broke, get a better job. Not bad. Not the only answer, but it might be right for the situation. But there is an equal chance that that obvious solution is an obvious solution because it's what everybody does and it doesn't effing work. Or how much it works is limited. It is finite. It has not a glass ceiling. It has an effing lead ceiling. Can you get through a 20-foot thick lead ceiling? Do you know how you get through it? You go around it. You leave the effing building that it's on top of. You go out the door. You find another path. That's what you do. And that's what this book's really about. So if you can't tell, I kind of recommend it. This day, right now, this Friday, you're sitting there with things in your life you love that give you joy. And you're sitting there with things in your life you hate and things you dislike and things that annoy you and things that you don't want to be. And you know in your heart, even if you haven't fully figured it out, even if you haven't fully visualized it, you know where you'd like to be. You know what you want. So then all you have to do is figure out exactly which way you fold your wings as you head toward that destination. And just like Jonathan, you will crash. It will hurt. And people will mock you. And I'm going to say a word I don't say often. I'm going to have to put the explicit because it's the only word that will make sense in this context. Fuck them. Okay? Fuck them. Because you're not living their life. You're living your life. Just like you don't... I say this all the time. You don't get to live the life of your children for your children. They live their life. You bring them up and you set them free. 
to live their life. If you think, well, I wish I would have, then you go do that now. But just like that, we allow society to be collectively our freaking parents. Fuck them. Live your life your way. Because it's the only thing that really makes it worth living in the first place. I'll give you one more quote today. And I think it's really important here. Anne Rand. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man nor ask another man to live for mine. That doesn't mean that you wouldn't risk your life for someone else. But it means that you will live your life for yourself because it's the gift you were given. And that is not arrogance. That is not narcissism as long as it's attached to the other side. You could never ask anyone to live their life for you. Live your own life. Be your own master. Go out and get it done. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Time for our song of the day. Song of the day today kind of fits right in with this. We're doing John Denver week, and um, like I said yesterday, John Adam, who puts together the music list for me, does a really good job of breaking out of the well-known things from artists when we do an artist theme week, but I sometimes pull us back into the well-known, and probably the most well-known song by John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. And the reason I decided to pull back in and not use his recommendation today is because it does fit a lot of what we were just talking about. Um, Denver brought up this song in 1985. Not so long ago, as I've said recently in this week. But in 1985, the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC, which was kind of shepherded by Tipper Gore, former Vice President Al Gore's wife, wanted to put warning labels on songs. And John Denver testified, representing artists, at the Senate hearing. And this is what he said. As an artist, I am opposed to any kind of rating system, voluntary or otherwise. My song, Rocky Mountain High, was banned from many radio stations as a drug-related song this was obviously done by people who had never seen or been to the Rocky Mountains and also had never experienced the elation and celebration of life or the joy and living that one feels when he observes something as wondrous as the Perseids meteor shower on a moonless, cloudless night when there are so many stars that you have a shadow from the starlight and you are out camping with your friends, your best friends, and introducing them to one of nature's most spectacular light shows for the very first time. Obviously, a clear case of mister misinterpretation, Mr. Chairman. What assurances have I that any national panel to review my music would make any better of a judgment? The people who break out from the conventional always catch the slings and arrows, guys. This song is amazing. This song I understood for the very first time when it was played for me when we took a Jeep trip at Rocky Mountain National Park, which is where John Denver was during this whole experience. And there's some lines in it that are really personal. I talked about yesterday how um, Country Roads was not autobiographical. This song is. Here's some of the references in the lyrics of this song. He was born in the summer of his 27th year. John was 27 years old the summer that he wrote this song. 
coming home to a place he'd never been before. He and his, his, his uh, wife, Annie, had just made Aspen, Colorado, their home. And he lost a friend, but kept his memory. A good friend from Minnesota had come to visit and was killed riding John's motorcycle that year. Why they try to tear the mountains down to bring in a couple more. This referred to a debate at the time about having the, the Olympics in the state of Colorado. They'd been awarded the Olympics, and Colorado eventually decided they didn't want to alter their mountains and bring in all these people and turn down the Olympics. It's the only city that's ever been granted an Olympics, only state that's ever been granted an Olympics, only Olympic venue that's ever been awarded, and then the people that was awarded to turn around and said, no, nah, we don't want it. Now, there's a whole article I won't get into about that that's in the show notes today if you want to read more about it. So this was very true to his life song. And there was a BBC radio program called the John Denver Show. And he introduced this song on it. And I would like to introduce this song to you right now. And then I'm just going to go ahead and fade into it and play it. But this is what John said about this song. You and I have just broken out of a huge stand of Douglas fir. The trees tower hundreds of feet above us. We've come out of the solemn, cathedral-like darkness of the trees into the bright, early morning sunshine of a grassy slope. The grass is wet and soft with morning dew beneath our feet. The air is crisp, so crisp it sends the needles of joyful pain through the membranes of your nose. The air is so clear it seems to purify your lungs. On both sides, above and beyond, stretch the awesome Rockies, their great snow-capped peaks jutting out of the early morning mist. This is living. This is what man was created for, to live and work and continue what these mountains represent. This is true freedom, being part of nature and drawing from it and returning back to it. With that, This has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he'd never been before. He left yesterday behind him, you might say he was born again. Might say he found the key for every door When he first came to the mountains His life was far away On the road and hanging by a song But the string's already broken And he doesn't really care It keeps changing fast And it don't last too long Rocky Mountain High Colorado Rocky Mountain
Rocky Mountain High Rocky Mountain High 